it's very common that you want three views. You want a view which is temporal. What is the team working on this week? You want a view that's personal. What is Mark thinking about right now? What does he want to have at hand? And then there's a view which is subject-based. What is the design of our sync system? And what link cards allow you to do is to have any given thing appear in each of those. Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is a tool for deep work on iPad and Mac. But this podcast isn't about Muse the product. It's about the small team and the big ideas behind it. I'm Adam Wiggins, here with my colleague Mark McGrenigan. Hey, Adam. So a little bit of news from the Muse product side. We recently released a feature called Linked Cards to Everyone and been quite surprised and happy with how useful these have proven to be. It was in beta through the Backstage Pass with our pro members for a few months, but yeah, it just seems so valuable to everyone. We were really happy to launch it broadly, and that's especially true within the Muse for Teams context. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the feature and our approach, and we'll talk about some of these use cases and we've seen. But of course, we have to start with something philosophical and historical to set the context. So our topic today is linking. So what comes to mind for you, Mark, when you hear that word? That's quite a rich set of precedents there. Perhaps the very first thing one thinks of is web links. Although, as we'll discuss, I don't think that's actually the closest case of prior art. Also comes to mind things like citations, but really dialing into linked cards, things like file system symlinks, wiki backlinks, the knowledge graphs that you see in emerging knowledge management tools, things like that. To me, it's an interesting topic because it is such a simple idea. It almost seems too simple. It's just one place or work or piece of information is referencing another place or work or piece of information. But I think there is something very powerful emerges from that. I would say a lot of the current sort of tools for thought, excitement or revolution, if you want to call it that, in the productivity software space is largely built on the foundation of linking as a core idea, as well as the web, obviously, hypertext and hyperlinks. Even though there's much more to the web than just the link, that actually is a very foundational piece. And so it's quite surprising what emerges from that. Yeah, you mentioned citations. Be fun maybe to talk about that a little bit more towards the end. But I think that was sort of the original thing is, I don't know, a thousand years ago, someone is writing a book and they want to reference another book or, I don't know, maybe it's not even a book, maybe it's a scroll, and you just name it, right? You say, the item titled this, maybe you give the author and when it was written as a way to kind of hopefully unambiguously refer to this thing. And that implies that there's this greater canon of human knowledge, which indeed, at some point, we started to have a, if not unified, perhaps today you can say it's a fairly unified sort of sphere of books and videos and newspaper articles and all that sort of thing. But yeah, you go back in history and just the simple idea of referencing another work that is not the one that you're currently reading implies the larger sphere. And indeed, then you start to build this network and these connections and this implication of shared knowledge. So again, this one simple idea, just this simple reference of naming another thing, from that comes this sort of giant hive mind of all human knowledge. Yeah, and I think it's really important because, as we've said many times on the podcast, knowledge is built up in this web. It's not a linear process. It's this very messy, organic, incremental 
growth of knowledge that happens over time. And so things like citations help reify that. Another piece of prior art that's more on the technical side is file systems. I think this was probably my first exposure to thinking about links as a first-class item. So in Unix, you have what's called the sim link or symbolic link. There's also hard links, but we don't necessarily need to get into those. On Windows, you have something that are called shortcuts, which I think a lot of people are familiar with just because there's a little kind of icon that indicates this isn't the original item, this is a pointer to that item. And you often get that on your desktop, for example. The application doesn't live on your desktop. You just have a, well, a shortcut to it there for convenience. And Mac also has something called aliases, although, of course, it's also Unix under the hood, so you can use symlinks. But regardless, this idea of linking things together where a file lives in one place in the hierarchical file system or on your hard drive, but you can reference it from another, that was my first real exposure to both the power of it, but also sometimes can be confusing or you can tie yourself in knots with, you know, circular references or whatever. I think file systems are interesting because they illustrate there's actually several very different types of things that can be happening here. So let me enumerate them quickly. You can have a duplicate, you can make a copy of a file. You could potentially recognize that those copies are the same objects by content addressing. You can have a transparent pointer. This would be like a symlink or an alias where the second object is of a different type. It has a little arrow thing. It's not a regular icon. But when you, for example, double-click on it, it opens the underlying pointed to object. So it's mostly but not entirely behaving like the original thing. And then you can have something that behaves exactly like the original thing. If you have the recents tab in your finder, for example, the items there are the same thing as when you go to the original location in your file system. It's kind of a different view. So when we talk about linking, we're often referring to one or more of these things. So I think it's useful to remember that there's several quite different types of objects in play. And maybe one more that we could add is the actual file system path. This would be comparable to the HTTPS URL on the web. Some people call that a link. Some people would say the actual underlined hyperlink thing where you click is a link. Right? These are all different objects and they have different properties. Yeah, I would call the path, what I would think of the generic term for that is the address. And... Within a single computer system, you usually have this unified way to reference a file, which is the path. Actually, I would argue citations are probably a place where you know there's all these standards, right? You use the Chicago Manual of Style or the this or that. Basically, how you do a citation is actually there's a lot of specific formats, and if you mess it up, you get in trouble, especially if you're trying to do a, a scientific work. But coming to the web, one of the things that is so miraculous there is this totally unified address format. So there's links, and links have appeared in a lot of different computer software, but maybe what makes you know, the World Wide Web and HTML work so well is that you have the URL, the Uniform Resource Locator, and that that single address is unique in the world, or at least in the internet, which is you know our digital world, and that now that that is deployed so universally, both in desktop browser software, but also in APIs and so on, that if you just have that one string, and you don't need to understand how it works or how to break the pieces apart or even certainly how the packets are routed, you just know that your web request is going to go to where you need it to, which is, again, quite a miraculous, not just technical achievement or design achievement, but really kind of human coordination achievement that we've managed to deploy that so widely. And probably as long as we're talking about the history here, worth just giving a quick nod to you know links and, well, the term hyperlink was coined by Ted Nelson, who's quite good at these uh, rather bombastic 
terms. Transclusion is another one of his that we use with some frequency. But then also, for example, Doug Engelbart's NLS included a version of linking hypercard. A lot of that is about how cards link together. And so there's the web, I think, rolls together or is the best manifestation of all of those ideas. But the history of it in computing goes back to really to almost the beginning. Now, another invention from the 1990s, sort of piggybacking on the web, is the wiki, right? And I think Ward Cunningham was the inventor of the first of these, and it certainly builds on that foundation of the web. But one thing it brought that's unique is what I usually call the double bracket notation. So the idea that you can put in brackets a keyword, a very human-readable keyword, that is a link to someplace else in not the entire internet. It's not a complete globally addressable address, but it more makes that keyword into something. We're saying there's a reference for this in this system, in this wiki. And one of the interesting things about that, certainly there's the accessibility that it's very easy to use, but I think one of the fallouts of that or one of the implications is that you can link something that doesn't exist yet, which is an interesting idea, right? And I've certainly used this in team wikis, for example, where there's a project page I know I need to write because we're talking about doing this project, but I haven't done it yet, but I want to reference that. I can put that in brackets, and sometimes that link shows up in a different color or something like that. Wikipedia has a version of this as well where you basically can link something that's not there. You click on it, and then it tells you, this isn't here yet. Would you like to add some content? But it's a nice way to stub something out. And there's another very important behavior difference. So if we go back to the example of the file system, if you want to refer to a file several times, the first operation is very different. You got to create the file and write the contents. And then subsequent operations create a different type of object, a symlink or an alias or something. So there's this huge discontinuity. And typically on a file system, it's not as native to go the other direction to get the so-called backlinks. And one of those backlinks, you're basically missing it because there's nothing pointing back to the place where you did the original operation from. Whereas on a wiki, for example, when you make a double bracket, that's the same the first time, the second time, the third time you do it. And furthermore, when you go to the backlink page for whatever was in double brackets, those backlinks are all symmetric, I believe. Like there's not special treatment for the first double bracket that you happen to have made mentioning some noun that is the current title of the page. Those properties are subtle, but as we discuss the Muse approach to link cards, I think that will become important. Yeah, I think backlinks were present for a long time in things like Wikipedia and other places, but I really think the modern, call it linking backlinking trend really came with what are now usually called knowledge graphs. So Rome kicked that whole thing off. Notion had always had linking, but they added backlinks, I think somewhat in reaction to the overnight success of Rome. Then you have all these kind of Rome-descended products like Obsidian, LogSeq, even classic kind of text editor note tools like IA Writer are getting into that now. And I think what you referenced there with the backlink and links being symmetric, I think that's why they call them the knowledge graph, is this idea that the nodes are the notes, and those notes might be something about a person or a thing or a concept or an event or a meeting or whatever. But the edges, those links in the graph, represent relationships. And actually seeing those relationships and again, treating them as symmetric, as you said. Of course, it gives you these cool visualizations where you see all the time you've invested in your notes and how they all fit together. Or if you look at more like a larger scale wiki like Wikipedia, you can see the relationship, the clustering of different knowledge. But sometimes the relationship between things is 
as important as the things themselves. Yeah, and I have to be honest, I've been surprised by how taken folks are with linking and backlinking and explicit knowledge graphs. I certainly think that they're useful in their own ways, but there's something about them that people get really excited about. Indeed. Well, I certainly think of this trend scene community around Tools for Thought in the last three, four years. Obviously, I'm very happy. I'm sometimes surprised as well. I certainly find it very powerful. I'm also glad people get excited about it. And in general, I think that's part of what's been great about this Tools for Thought scene or community or or just trend that we've had in the last few years, which is people getting excited about productivity software and excited about their knowledge tools. Now, sometimes I do think it gets a little bit narrowly focused on linking and backlinking knowledge graphs and lots of different variations on that. But I think that was a really good starting place. It's a good example of showing how just managing our information in different ways can unlock new possibilities for individuals, for groups, for humanity as a whole. And obviously computing, the dynamic medium of computing has so much untapped potential that we're really just at the beginning of it. So I certainly hope that the excitement over knowledge graphs is just a door opener to a wider world of tools for thought, productivity, and in general, just continuing to explore what's possible in the world of knowledge and information systems. Well, I guess that naturally brings us to the Muse approach and this linked cards feature. And it came up a lot in the very early days of our product because we were part of the tools for thought scene from the beginning and people naturally think of the linking, backlinking, knowledge graph stuff, that that's kind of like a foundational feature. And obviously we were more focused on the visual and spatial elements, the freeform sketching, bringing together your research materials to ruminate upon. But we always knew, hey, yeah, linking super useful for all the reasons we just described. And we always knew we would want to bring it to the product at some point, but we wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be right to just straight up copy the double bracket notation or something like that. I mean, you know, maybe that could fit in, but we wanted something that would be more in tune with how we do things, the visual and spatial approach. And that's what brought us to linked cards. Yeah, and Muse, we think there's a lot of value to each piece of content having a place. And for a long time, we said that a piece of content should have exactly one place. But we found that to be a little bit too limiting. So often you would have a board, for example, that you wanted to be able to access that made sense in the context of, say, your daily work and in the context of a longer-term project. And that presented a conundrum. What do you do in Muse to be able to access, say, that board from both locations? Now, one thing you could do is the file system type approach where you have some canonical board in one place and then you have a second-class pointer board in another case. But that felt unsatisfying to us. Like we didn't want this two-tier system and this notion of like a pointer board versus a regular board. So this is where we come to linked cards. And the idea with linked cards is that it's a set of cards, two or more, that point to the same content symmetrically. I think actually back some years ago now, we had this notion of like portals or mirrors, which I think are not as suitable for a public product, but I think describe the notion of the sort of two views from two different locations into the same underlying content. So you can access the content from either place A or B, but when you zoom in, for example, you're at the same place. And there's also a sort of backlinking type mechanism where you can, from any of these linked card instances, say, where else is this card present? And you can 
seamlessly navigate to those other locations to move across different contexts. And then to close the loop here, if for some reason you were to delete one instance of two of these linked cards, you gracefully go back to the base case of there's a simple piece of content that's in exactly one location. Yeah, you mentioned the concept of location quite a bit there, and I think that ends up being key to it. This is something that's different compared to a, for example, a notes tool that does not have the spatial component. The spatial component is so core to Muse and what Muse is offering you as a thinking tool, where something is located that's in a little pile with some things over here versus this other pile over here might be really important for your thinking process or how you're making sense of a set of materials. So naturally then, where something lives, if it's going to live in two places or more than two places, you need to have some concept of that and key to this ends up being this little icon that basically goes in the upper left corner that lets you see all the places that it is and then really importantly switch between them quickly. So you can use it as kind of a portal to essentially teleport to this other location in your larger knowledge sphere. And this proves to be a really helpful and useful concept that preserves the spatialness and preserves that sense of place that we think is so important, but kind of breaks the one-to-one relationship and gets you a lot more of the ability to build a more complex knowledge graph. Yeah, and by the way, there's a pretty slick animation that happens when you change locations like this that I think really nicely reflects what we're trying to get after, which is when it works correctly, it's hard to get it to work correctly in all cases because of the literal dimensionality of the canvas and the objects. But the content that is linked in multiple locations sort of stays in the same place and the background around it shifts. So you are appearing in this new location, but you're still anchored by this content that was meant to appear in multiple locations. I think that's pretty slick. Yeah, that was a really clever creation by Leonard and Yulia because so much of how you are oriented is based around this navigation in and out of boards and panning around them. And so we were worried, or even in the early prototypes, I think when you saw you could just jump, it's disorienting. So this transition animation serves more than the purpose of just being fun to look at or something like that, but actually helps you keep that sense of being oriented. And now that I think about it, I'm actually not sure how common it is to have this backlink style navigation available without going into the object in question. Do you know what I mean? So like on a wiki, you can click on a link and then click on backlinks and from there get to a sibling page. But I don't know how common it is to be able to go directly to a sibling page from the, say, link. Mm. Because yeah, Typically, you're viewing the board sort of from the outside. You're seeing its thumbnail, essentially, and then you're deciding to go to this other place where it is located. Yeah, yeah, that's true. This is why we needed to do our own take on this, is that when you're in that spatial setting, it's just a different thing than when you're in lists of documents that aren't organized, or you just don't have a visual metaphor for it that works in that same way. Well, speaking of that animation and general, the transition of being able to quickly jump between locations, this was actually quite a technical challenge to implement. So I thought it might be fun if we could get our colleague, Yulia, on the phone here briefly and see if she could tell us a little bit about how all that worked. Hello. Hey, Yulia. Congratulations on shipping linked cards. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I guess it's been sitting there in the backstage pass for a while, but it's nice that we can finally give it to the whole world. And yeah, it looks like users are pretty excited about it. Yeah, well, I feel like it was one of our smoother betas in the sense that we actually went pretty quickly from, I think it was in the backstage pass for, I don't know, three, four months, something like that. But it basically worked really great from the start. We needed to make a couple small tweaks, but nothing too dramatic. Yeah. And yeah, people were finding it really useful. So it just sort of made sense to bring it into production. But Mark and I were just talking about the location switching and the transition animation, as well as the challenges there. And I seem to remember in that first implementation, there was a lot of technical challenges. I was hoping you could give us a little insight into that. Yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, I guess we could start with the transition since we were just talking about that. But um, there's actually quite a bit to uncover. So let's see if we get to all of that. But yeah, one of the things that made this a bit challenging to implement is that, of course, us being news, we had kind of high stakes for the UX and how we wanted it to feel. And Leonard, our designer, had initially prototyped something where you could just super quickly like hit a button and cycle through all of the different places where this link card existed. That ended up not being quite feasible, but we still wanted to make it pretty fast so that you can just go and select a different location and you're basically there quite instantly. But yeah, depending on how large these boards are that these cards live in, rendering a big board can actually take quite a bit of time. And there's some tricks that we do when you transition from one board to the next, kind of just in a normal zoom in that makes that feel instantaneous, even though it's actually not quite instantaneous. So for every board that you have, we store a snapshot. They're basically PNGs that render your entire board content into an image. And those are actually what you see in the little cards that represent your boards. And when you zoom in, we actually load a higher resolution version of that image kind of seamlessly as the transition happens so that when the transition finishes and you're zoomed in for the first, depending on how big the board is, half a second to maybe a second or two, you're actually still looking at the image of the board. And then as everything gets loaded in the background, we switch out that image for the actual board view that where you can interact with the cards and everything. So this usually happens behind the scenes and ideally the user never actually notices it. So for these transitions for the link cards, we basically had to do a similar trick. So when you first select from the drop-down menu on the Mac or I think on the iPad, it's a context menu as well, tapping on this button. When you first select a different location, we actually immediately load in the high-resolution snapshot of that board and we transform it to match exactly the position of the card in the board that you came from. So the idea is basically the card stays in the same place and then the content around it just changes. And yeah, to do that really fast, we have to load in the JPEG, put the card on top of that image. Then in the background, we actually load the entire board hierarchy and the real views. And then once that's done, we remove the image and you're actually in that board and you can start interacting with the content. Yeah, and it feels very quick to me, but certainly your brain needs a moment to process the new scene that you're looking at before you're going to go do anything to it. And so that sort of like is part of the stage magic there is you use that moment of 
the human is reorienting themselves to the new location to do the work of rendering the interactive view. Yeah, and most of the time it works actually quite nicely. Of course, since the card in the new location that you're going to might actually be in a completely different position. Let's say you come from a board where the card is on the very top left, kind of the first thing that you see in the board. And then you go to a board where it's all the way at the bottom right, like maybe several screen widths away. Then there's also the thing that we sometimes see where it kind of jumps a little bit because in the destination board, it's actually so close to the edge that you can't scroll it into the place where the cat was in the previous view. Maybe that's getting a little bit too much into the details. And I also remember really well when we were in the midst of implementing this that a lot of other operations in the application that seemed unrelated to linked cards got really slow as a result once we had this in our internal test flight builds. And it just so happened we were at our team summit last August when we were working on this. And I remember you and Adam Wolf furiously drawing complex graphs and talking through the problem on the kitchen table in the house we were staying in. Can you tell me about what that was all about? Yeah, so this was kind of a surprising turn that the whole thing took. We initially thought seems like a pretty straightforward feature. You just basically create a new card that points to the same document and then we display this little kind of link icon in the top left corner of the card to indicate that this is a link card so there's other cards that represent the same document. And the initial implementation of all of this was actually really fast, like kind of done in a few days. And then we noticed the app got really slow. And it wasn't initially clear why that was, but as we looked into it further, it actually turned out that the kind of database queries that had to happen to actually determine whether a card is a linked card or not a linked card ended up being extremely expensive. So the first thing that needs to happen is that we check for a given document, how many cards actually point to this document. So that's kind of one database query. That's relatively simple. And if we have more than one card, you would think, okay, surely this is a linked card, so we should show this little icon. But it's actually not enough to just look at the number of cards that point to this document because some of these cards might actually not be in your corpus at all. They might be unreachable from the home board. And this is because when you delete something from your corpus, let's say you delete a board that has a bunch of subcontent, we don't actually go in and prune every single subboard and every single document that is contained in the subtree that is that board. We just set the board that you deleted to delete it and it disappears from your view hierarchy. And as far as the app is concerned, you can't actually navigate to it anymore from anywhere. But there might be somewhere in there a board or a card that points to that same board that you have also linked somewhere else. And that card is technically not deleted. It just happens to not be reachable from the home board. So we actually also for each card that points to this board, we need to determine, is this actually in the user's graph? Is this card something that is in quotation mark deleted? So the user can't actually reach it from their home board or is it actually in the corpus and we should include it in the list of linked cards for this particular document. And that actually ended up being an extremely expensive operation because you kind of have to tee up multiple queries to find the parent board of the parent board of the parent board. And if you eventually end up at the root of the corpus, then yes, this card is reachable. But doing this 
kind of on every render just because you want to display a board with a couple cards in it and determine whether or not they should get a little icon in the corner just ended up really slowing down the app, just kind of rendering a pretty basic board structure started becoming very slow and affecting all kinds of parts in the app. So what we ended up doing was something that we had thought about on and off anyway, because it was kind of a data structure that would help us in all kinds of different scenarios in working on the app and kind of working with the user's content. We ended up creating a graph structure that actually maps out the user's content in a very easily queryable way. So in this case, we're only storing the IDs of all the documents and their relationships to each other. So if a card displays a board, that's basically one node of the graph. And then we build out the graph this way. And every time something changes, every time you add a card or delete a card or you move a card around, we update that graph immediately. So then and every time we want to render something, we don't need to do all of these database queries again. We just need to go to this graph and say, give me all the cards that point to this document or give me all the parents of this card. And from there on, it then got very fast. Now, of course, you have kind of an additional data structure kind of model around the user's data that you constantly have to maintain. So that's, of course, leaves new surface area for bugs or kind of forgetting to update this as the code grows, but it's so far been really helpful and has made the app a lot faster in that regard again. Yeah, and this is all in memory, right? Yes, exactly. This gets built once when you launch the app and then just continuously updated. Yeah, and we have a similar thing on the server. And it's definitely true that it's a little bit troublesome to get all the details right of maintaining basically a second view over all the data. But at least it's just in memory, so you get to blow it away each time the app starts. It makes it much more forgiving in my experience versus something on disk, which is a whole other level of ordeal. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's always a trade-off with database or persistence layers is that the more indexes you have that slice the data in different ways you want to view it, the faster it will be. But now all those indexes have to be maintained and if they get messed up, you need to regenerate them or something like that. And that's the fine art of data persistence. Yeah, exactly. As Mark and I were talking about earlier, one thing that introducing linked cards to Muse did was to break this strict one-to-one, cards are only in one place, everything is a very direct hierarchy. And that changed things in the user interface, certainly. For example, that you can navigate into a board from several different locations. And that comes up, I think, in both the individual user, just you know, when you pinch out, you expect to go back to the board you were on originally. But it also comes up even in our multiplayer world in terms of like where we're going to show an avatar floating over a board relative to the path they took to get into it. I'm curious to know what kinds of challenges there's been in adapting all of that. Yeah, this is something that we kind of noticed in hindsight when certain things in the app that used to be really easy, like navigate to a particular document based on its ID, now suddenly had kind of unclear implications because that document isn't just in one place anymore. So if, for example, I have a deep link that points to a specific document and I open Muse, clicking on that deep link, where do I actually go? Like, of course, I go to the document, but what's the context? Is it 
the linked cart on my home board or is it the one that's five levels deeply nested in one of the subboards or is it one that's you know linked from somewhere else so we can't actually describe a position in your corpus anymore just by a particular document or board id this also became evident when something that seems really trivial like you close the app and then you open it up again and we have to like launch it afresh and ideally bring you to the place that you've left off because that's probably where you want to continue working. Previously, we just basically always stored the ID of the board where the user was last on. And when the app launched, we opened that board and built the view hierarchy underneath it. So all of the parent boards all the way up to the root board underneath. And that was it. So now we actually have to store the entire navigation stack, including every card, basically kind of leaving breadcrumbs of where the user went to end up on the board that they're currently viewing. And this all gets serialized to disk when the app quits so that when you launch the app again, we can look at these breadcrumbs and retrace the steps to exactly where the user had come from. And we're going to have to do that probably with all kinds of things like deep links or like sharing URLs for go to this board. Well, which one do you mean? Do you mean the one on the home board or the one <laughs> five levels deep down below? So we'll, we're going to have to start encoding these path information into all kinds of things, including, I think, like you said, the presence of avatars in a board. Like if you're in this board, you're technically in five different locations, but we don't want to show your avatar in all of these different locations. We want to show exactly the path you took to get to that board. Do I remember anything about detecting cycles, like sort of putting a linked card inside itself and dealing with that as being part of the initial technical challenge as well? Yeah, so detecting cycles actually has always been a big challenge for Muse and linked cards actually was a big relief for that because now instead of having to be really careful to prevent cycles, we can kind of allow them and embrace them. So in the pre-linked cards world, there were a few weird edge cases. For example, when you had two windows of Muse open, so like split screen on the iPad or two actual windows on the Mac, and let's say you have board A, B, C, where A is your root board and B is the board in between and then C is deeply nested. And you have board A in the one window and have board B open in the other window. And then you pick up board B, the card for board B in the window of board A, and then drag it into the other window and drop it into board B. Then you just mm. drop B into B. So now B is contained in itself. And you've effectively detached it from the view hierarchy. This is now also something that we can nicely detect with the corpus graph. And previously, we had to really make sure to prevent these accidental operations. So basically, disallow you from dropping the card there because that could very easily lead to not technically data loss, but data loss in the sense of you can't get to that content anymore. And we didn't have any UI of kind of surfacing these detached cycles. So now when you do this, instead of disallowing the operation, it'll just drop a linked card of itself into B and mm. keep card B in A, but then also put a linked card of B into B. And so now you have an endless loop of B and B and you could try it out. I think you could basically go indefinitely navigate and probably at some point the app will crash because you have put hundreds of view controllers onto the navigation stack. I'm not actually sure what happens, but it does work well for quite some time. And I guess technically if you're 10 levels deep into B and you're still on B, 
when you then quit and relaunch the app, we should also build the stack 10 levels deep. Although I guess in this case, the card is actually the same. So I'm not quite sure how that would work. But yeah, there's definitely lots of fun little edge cases like this. And I think almost always if someone does one of those things you described, it's an error, essentially, or they're just doing it to see what happens. Yeah. So it's not so much that we need to make it make perfect sense, but more that just we need to not yeah, have the app crash or screw up your data or get you into a state that you can't get out of. Yeah, exactly. Well, my head's spinning a little bit with all the complexities here. I'm glad I get to just be a user and <laughs> not need to load all of that into my brain. So thanks for taking us through it, and we'll let you get back to your Xcode. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Few, I actually didn't fully know what was there. I had a sense of it because we actually have one of our earliest boards that we have in our Muse for Teams shared workspace is one of the kind of scribblings that Wolf and Yulia did together when they were thinking through this whole what she was calling the corpus graph, this kind of relationship index. So I had a sense there was something there, but I didn't know quite how deep that rabbit hole went. Now, another area to talk about is the design considerations that went into this. I think Yulia mentioned some of those in the sense of what happens when you do particular edge cases in the sense of the user's mental model about this. I think you also mentioned briefly in passing the idea of having cards which were more of a reference, more like that file system shortcut was one of our first prototypes. So if I remember correctly, they implemented prototypes of what we ended up with, which is this kind of each card is a mirror of each other. And essentially, any change you make to one happens to the other. And there is no kind of source or original. But they had also mocked up something where there was a link card that was very similar to our web links, which of course are a reference, not a mirror, but that had a little richer of a preview and we basically tried that out. And that actually felt pretty good. We liked that in a lot of ways. But somehow, I think the mirror felt just more of the kind of embodied or physical or spatial style that fits with Muse. And actually, that fed into the, the name of it as well. When I was chatting with Leonard about this, he mentioned or he pointed out that we call them linked cards. Linked ending with an ED, not link cards, right? Link cards we have for web links, for example, or you can put deep links to other iOS apps. It's really clear that that thing is not in Muse. It's someplace else. This is a reference that will take you there. We'll open it in a browser, that sort of thing. But the idea with the linked cards, which are usually boards, but can also be a PDF or a video or something else, they really are like the same thing and they are linked together and the content will always stay the same. Yeah, and if you think about it from first principles, I think it makes sense that we ended up here because when you're dealing with external content, you don't really have a choice. It has to be a link without an ED object because it's not something that you control. But when it's internal, why not? You have full control over this, including the magical ability to make it appear in multiple locations. Another design consideration here is what you do with things that are untitled. So this is something we consider a key feature. It was part of the Muse white paper that we published from the research lab a few years back, which is the ability to create something and not have to give it a name, which I'm a fan of generally. I don't necessarily want to have to name a project before I've decided what's going to go into it. But usually, of course, you end up with something that's called untitled, and then you end up with untitled parentheses two, three, four, and so forth. That's a really common thing you see in, I don't know, classic word processors or whatever. But in Muse, you can put 
all kinds of items. In fact, most of your items don't have names necessarily. You may only title a board or an image or something later once you kind of know what it is, what it's about. But of course, what that also means, the location switcher is showing you a text representation. So then we need to show you basically this is an untitled board in the case or an untitled card of some kind. I think that's not fully solved. I think Leonard is still kind of chewing on that a little bit and the best way to manage that. But certainly as we get into more and more things that are not pure spatial and visual, things like search, for example, that's going to come up more and more. So I think this untitled boards design or untitled cards design challenge, that's a key feature of the app. We want to keep that. That's desirable. But at the same time, how do we handle that in a more of a text or list kind of setting like this? Yeah, we'll continue to noodle on that. I think in practice, it hasn't been too bad because the places that you tend to put linked cards are relatively important and therefore tend to have titles. That's just been my experience. So more often than not, you have a suitable title in place. But yeah, I agree that as we get into more non-spatial content types, as I've been calling them, it's going to become more important. Yeah, well, maybe that brings us nicely to just talking about linked cards in practice, the use cases we've seen from users and customers, as well as what we've experienced ourselves on the team. And definitely going into it, we didn't necessarily know what all the use cases would be or what the best use cases would be, which is sort of a funny thing. I think you even raised the flag on this a little bit, which is you want to have a lot of clarity usually about what your use cases are before developing a feature. And we had a list of them, but it was sort of more driven by where we started the podcast, which was linking's just really useful. And probably if we add it, things will emerge that we wouldn't have even predicted necessarily. And I think that's kind of how it panned out. Many and most of the use cases that we had in mind initially did come to light. But basically immediately, once we released this in beta, and then we had some lively discussion on our Discord in the betas channel, where folks were trying this out and sharing what they were using it for. And we were almost immediately surprised by some of the interesting stuff that folks were doing with it. So maybe we could start with how we are using it personally or on the team. How have you found linked cards that fit into your Muse workflow, or have they? Yeah, for me, a little bit. So in both my personal corpus and on the team's corpus, I've seen us use them for what I might call workflow purposes, where you have a board, it's usually a board, that you find that you want to access from a few different contexts. It might be, for example, you have a technical design for something that you want, on the one hand, in the context of your larger technical board, and also in the context of your weekly planning, say. That sort of thing I find happens pretty frequently. And I do similar stuff like that for personal projects where I want it on some maybe more temporal board versus more subject matter board. And it's helpful to see the thing in both places. I also use it a little bit as a sort of bookmark feature where there's some topic that you know is referenced in a few different places in your corpus, and you can create a board for that notion and then make a linked instance of that board in those handful of other places. And then you have a sort of bookmark access portal network, you know, underground tunnels <laughs> to your different boards. Now, what I don't use it for is the really high cardinality, super dense, reified web that you sometimes see with knowledge graph tools where like each page has 10 links and you're trying to form this really explicit graph of concepts. I've argued that, I mean, I think there's something to that, but the in fact network of concepts is so massively dense. It's like 
the branching factor is thousands or more that I think you're kind of fooling yourself if you think you're going to fully reify that in the tool. There's still some uses to it, right? But in my mind, that stuff happens in my head. And where I find myself using the links is more for workflow purposes where I know I'm going to want to traverse these networks of boards in non-hierarchical ways. Yeah, well, I was surprised how useful it turned out to be. I guess I didn't feel quite the burning desire for it. But again, we heard this just so often from users and customers and a few folks on our team also were really, really driven about it. And of course, this reflects yeah, a very flexible and general purpose tool like Muse. People use it in lots of different ways. Everyone has their own approach. Not everyone uses every feature and so forth. But I was surprised how much I did find myself using it. Certainly a good bit in my personal Muse, but where I've really been surprised about how useful it is is the team setting. And I guess I shouldn't be so surprised from this because you know, using something like Notion or even Google Docs back in the day when that was when we used more of our internal memos and project documentation. Yeah, it's just really, really useful. You're going to build up this network collection of projects and concepts and processes and so forth, and it's just very good to be able to reference them to each other. A really simple version of that that comes up basically every week in our planning is we're having a discussion about, okay, these three people are working on this task this week, they're doing this and this and this, and by the way, they had previously had you know, a whole design sketching section and talked through exactly what they're going to do next. Here's the board for that. And so kind of in the call, what will happen is someone will go and grab a linked card for that and drop it in the planning document right alongside. There's the explicit list of tasks and assignments, what we're doing for the week, but here's the reference to, and as these projects get more complex, particularly as our team is growing and so forth, sometimes it's you have three <laughs> lines of tasks for the team that just describe what they're doing for the week, but then you double-click or you pinch to navigate into that subboard and you see this huge world of things, whether it's technical or design or whatever it is, and you either get a glimpse of it or maybe you think, okay, I'm going to sort of make a note to go review this later because I think it touches on my work. Or maybe you just go, oh man, I'm glad those people are working on that and not me because it's a whole huge world and I'm not going to load the context into my brain. But just that ability to just drop that reference there and very casually, I think it's just a really nice way to offer the depth if you want it, but you don't necessarily need to go into it right there in the meeting. Right. Another way to describe this might be different views into the same data. So I think it's very common that you want three views. You want a view which is temporal. What is the team working on this week? You want a view that's personal. What is Mark thinking about right now? What does he want to have at hand? And then there's a view which is subject-based. What is the design of our sync system? And what link cards allow you to do is to have any given thing, board say, appear in each of those. And really importantly from you, as you alluded to this, It's all symmetric because often the way this stuff happens in practice is someone is off noodling in their own world on, you know, how to do graph indexing for linked cards, as Elia was describing. And it would really be a shame if you either disallowed or made it look weird if that was to get promoted into the weekly work and then into the sort of canonical subject matter board for sync or the client, what have you. But with linked cards... These things get promoted and they're really peers among each other. So it's very natural for stuff to flow in organically versus you can imagine a world where there are second-class links and then the subject board, for example, is this weird mix of like boards versus second-class link boards. It just be kind of weird. Whereas here, you get this very nice minor link icon to indicate that 
this board appears in other places, but otherwise it's all symmetrical. Another thing I've noticed is that the number of links, the number of other locations, I guess, number of linked cards that is in that drop town serves as a sort of measure of importance. So as one example here, you wrote a description of the roadmap essentially for multiplayer our multiplayer features in terms of technical capabilities we needed to build as well as some of the user-facing stuff. And you wrote that pretty early in our process and that's been an important reference point for a lot of project planning and design work and so on. And so now there's a pretty good list of stuff there. And almost an interesting parallel there with, I think, citation count in scientific papers where you can measure the influence of a paper by how often it's cited. There's something similar for boards. Our most important boards tend to get referenced a lot. And notably, I don't think you necessarily know ahead of time which are going to turn out to be that. And maybe that's to your point about the canonical location, which is something might start in a board that I call Adam's Weird Ideas in November. And it turns out that one of them is useful or interesting enough that it keeps coming up and gets referenced a lot. And the fact that it started life there isn't important for its longer influence that it's going to have on what our team is up to. And speaking of personal workspaces and then promoting content into team spaces, I think the elegant transition from single instance to multiple linked instances is going to work really well. Because so right now in our Muse for Teams, basically everything is visible to everyone. Each of us has our own little workspace that's carved out and some of the little like pseudo screens over it. So people don't, I don't know, annoy us too much or, you know, look in before stuff is ready. But ultimately, if you, Adam, have something in your personal workspace and then link to it from the team's weekly planning board, for example, that backlink is going to appear to everyone in the current Muse for Teams space. But you can imagine a world where the backlink calculation is done per user. So in a world of more granular sharing that we'll have in the future, it could be that when you do that promotion and you go to the weekly team planning board, you see the backlink to your personal space. But when I go, I don't see that backlink. And in fact, it might just look like a regular board to me because that's the only place it appears for me. And then perhaps if I want to link it from my scratch board, then I see the two instances of it's on the weekly planning board and it's on my personal space. So that's, I think, an important example of how the linkedness is a property that emerges of how many times a given document is visible to you. And right now that's all the same because we're all sharing the same team space, but eventually it'll be more granular. Right Right now you've got your personal muse where it is by definition only visible to you. And then you've got team workspaces, which in our current beta are essentially everyone on the team can see everything. But in the future world we have in mind is one of much more granular sharing, as you said, the ability to share individual boards, as well as even within a team space, having a private office, private workspace where you can get stuff ready, even though it is intended to be in that bucket of here's something I'm doing for work or for this particular team or project. And it may be something that has some kind of a privacy screen over it, but you can relatively seamlessly move it into the shared space when you are ready to work on it. So yeah, it definitely opens up or it fits really cleanly into that paradigm. Well, maybe as a place to end, we're going to reference Ted Nelson again. I mentioned earlier he invented the term for hyperlinks, but he also invented this term transclusion. And the Muse take on transclusion so far is that you can grab what we call an excerpt from a PDF or an image 
or even a frame from a video and have a source link and indeed a little portal that takes you back to that place. But in some ways, linked cards have some of the same transclusion quality to them. And indeed, I think something we would like to see in the future is essentially a called a linked section or a linked portion of a board or other card. And actually at that point, then you start to see it as a sort of transclusion, right? A portal to that source, something you can potentially not only see, but potentially change. You can obviously navigate into it. And the fact that it is this one specific subset, I think is also part of the potential usefulness. Now, what the interface for that would look like, I think would be quite a design challenge, but I think the value of that would be fairly obvious and hopefully would make Ted Nelson proud. Yeah, I think that would be very powerful. I've definitely found myself wanting something like that and have received several support requests looking for that kind of capability. And just reasoning by analogy, this is super useful on the web. You have vanilla URL links, and then you have so-called anchor links, where you have the URL, the pound sign, and then some anchor tag, which typically corresponds to some heading or some other section of the web page. And when you click on that link, it takes you to the web page and scrolls right to the point. And sometimes with JavaScript, you can even make it highlight the particular thing that you scrolled right to. Super valuable. And importantly, with web links, the former is sort of a special instance of the latter. It's like you're basically linking to the whole thing. And I kind of wonder if we can make that same thing work in Muse, where instead of having separate linked card and excerpt slash transclusion features, there's sort of a continuum. So you could think of a linked card as, okay, you have underlying content, you make an excerpt, but the excerpt is like the whole thing. If the window is the size of the entire document. And then there's another thing you can do, which is make an excerpt where the window is smaller than the entire document. But you can see how those are on a continuum. And then things like the backlinking, for example, would be unified. I don't know if that's going to work out. We need to think about it more. But I think that'd be pretty powerful if we can get it to work. I also think both linked cards and excerpts could be relevant for, maybe you call them computed views or derived views. The example that I constantly go to is search. So there's one way to do search, which is like search is a totally separate thing with a totally separate interface. It's just kind of its own world. And then you click on links and it brings you back into the main app. The vision that I have for search is more like there's some content type that you're programmatically computing. So in the current muse, you can imagine you type some search terms and it computes a board that has a bunch of linked boards on it, which correspond to your search results, which would be a little bit weird. But you can imagine if Muse eventually has a non-spatial content type, basically a set type, which is more comparable to like a Mac Finder. And there, when you do a search, you compute a set of results, an ordered set maybe, or a list, and you present that in the same way that if you wanted to make a manual list, it would be you know very comparable. It's just how the set is built. And then furthermore, you can imagine if you're searching for text, for example, and it's searching within PDFs, it actually computes an excerpt object so that you can you know see where in the PDF the result is popping up. And then when you click on the excerpt, in the same way that you animate a manually created excerpt, it goes to the PDF source. So I think these are pretty cool building blocks for eventual computed types like search results. Yeah, and I know something I always find myself wanting with search generally. Google does a version of this, but I'm also thinking of Unix text search tools like Grep has a command line option to essentially give yourself a couple lines of context around the search term, maybe log search tools like Splunk. And when they don't have that, you're struggling to see, okay, like I found the error I searched for, but I really want to know what happened in the few lines before it. That context is really important, but sometimes 
there's not even a way to get to that. So the idea of the excerpt where you can easily see the context or even go completely to the source is something that's generally very powerful in computing. Well, then maybe I'll just encourage our listeners, if you haven't given linked cards a try yet, to go check that out in Muse. You can basically use the right-click context menu on your Mac or the dot-dot-dot context menu on the iPad and make yourself a little linked card and fool around and see if you like the metaphor we landed on there and tell us if you have any feedback. And we can wrap it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us on Discord to discuss the episode with me, Mark, and our community. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at MuseAppHQ. And Mark, I think the first 50 or so years of linking and computing have been pretty good. I'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Right on, Adam. 